Specialty Story, session number 32. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast is here to tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to the Specialty Stories Podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here, as well as the host of many other podcasts, which you can find at mededmedia, that's M-E-D-E-D, media.com. Today I have a great guest, somebody who's been practicing plastic surgery in the community as a private practice plastic surgeon for the last seven years. So we're gonna talk all about plastic surgery, what he likes about it, what he doesn't like about it, and what you as a pre-med or medical student can start doing now to make yourself a better applicant for plastics. Let's go ahead and jump in and talk to Dr. Russell Babbitt. So Russell, when did you know you wanted to be a plastic surgeon? I actually started medical school thinking I wanted to do emergency medicine because that was right around uh, when that show ER was really popular. And um, so then I got to med school and realized after precepting with ER docs that it really wasn't for me um, and did my surgical rotation and liked that a lot. And then when I did my plastics rotation, it really just kind of gelled very well. I had a background in art um, in college, and that's actually what I started college as an art major. And um, the visual spatial aspects really appealed to me once I got into plastics because it wasn't really just sort of cookbook, you know, do this, do that with every case. A lot of it is sort of applying spatial problems to differing situations and that really appealed to me and um the second i got onto my plastics rotation i really that immediately knew that that was kind of where i needed to be i'm assuming plastics wasn't a, a required rotation so you had to to go out and and manually pick it and, and choose it um where i went to med school at umass they typically had general like on your surgical surgery um third year rotations you had like your main, I don't know if it was maybe like a three month block and it was maybe six weeks of that was spent on general surgery. And then the other part of it was subdivided into other subspecialties. And I think many people ended up rotating through plastics and I was one of those people. And, um, but I think you could probably try to get things that you wanted to do. And plastics was one I don't remember if I specifically asked for it, if I just, it was luck of the draw, um, but either way it was serendipitous and I, you know, I definitely liked it a lot. Were there any other specialties that were pulling for your attention as you went through the process? I liked general surgery quite a bit, just in and of itself, and also vascular. Um, I liked just the meticulousness of the procedures um, and that approach, and just in terms of just surgical disease processes and um, the fact that you are able to really intervene on a lot of different illnesses and have the ability to take care of pretty sick people kind of across the board. And that was kind of a surprise to me where, you know, as you're going through the early parts of medical school, people kind of scoff at surgeons as they, you know, not really knowing what they're doing and they just want to cut everybody up. And then I was kind of shocked to find out that surgeons <laughs> actually really do know how to take care of sick people, very, very sick people. Yeah and are actually very well-rounded physicians. And that kind of came to me as a surprise. Um, and also the fact that they're kind of content with people thinking that about them. Um, and uh, so just in general, I liked the whole thought of being a surgeon and wanting to be a well-rounded surgeon. Um, and then the fact that plastics kind of builds on that really also was kind of nice. Um, but I liked them really that between vascular plastics, general surgery, and those, those are all kind of very closely related to because there's all there's elements of all of them that kind of work together. Yeah. What traits do if you think? Yeah, it does. What traits do you think lead to being a good plastic surgeon? I think meticulousness, um, having good, being a good visual spatial thinker, um, being a good communicator, definitely. Um, you can't be somebody that just kind of tells the patient, yeah, you need to have this done. 
period, end of discussion and walk out of the room. You really need to be willing to sit down with the patient and, and explain the disease process, the, the problems, the solutions, how we're going to get there. And that oftentimes there's many ways to get there. And also that there's many different things that can happen. Um, and I think you really see, and I'm sure you've seen it as well in your practice, that the docs who don't communicate well tend to, whether or not they're good physicians or good practitioners of what they do, the ones that don't communicate well tend to have much more difficulties regardless of what their outcomes are. Um, but I think that's especially true in plastics. Um, but then in that, beyond that, you have, you have to also have that skill set of being also a good technician and being able to actually develop a plan, know what you're going to do, sort of see the, the technical, um, problem that you're going to solve and, and actually execute it. And, and it's also no too that you can't just fix it and have it be a, a proper three-dimensional result, but also that it needs to look good, you know, three, four months down the road and years down the road. I tell patients all the time, I can make anything look perfect for three days until it turns black and falls off. <laughs> um, you have to also take into account that there's blood supply has to be intact at the end of the, at the end of the day. Yeah. Supposedly that's important. Yeah, allegedly. Um, <laughs> one of the, one of my mentors uh, told me um, once that you know what, when you're out in private practice, one of the things you have to do is when you do a skin graft, you need to make sure that every mitochondria survives. Um, and uh, I, this kind of a metaphor for the whole process is that you really have to just be really meticulous in every single thing that you do, um, and that people are watching and the patients are watching, and that you know that's one of the things people look for in a plastic surgeon. That's kind of I think an innate trait in a plastic surgeon, you're supposed to be kind of anal. You mentioned your art background and how that kind of led a little bit to, to liking your plastics rotation. Do you think people need to have an artistic background to be good plastic surgeons? I don't think it's necessary because I think a lot of people that go into medicine in general tend to be very agile thinkers. Um, so it can be, a lot of it can be taught. And when anybody who puts their nose to the grindstone can sort of learn how to apply a lot of these techniques and things that to, to be effective at it. But I, I definitely think for me, it helps a lot in terms of little shortcuts that allow me to kind of know what I'm going to do before I even necessarily think about it. Um, and I think it also might help in certain other areas where, where it, it might be hard to kind of teach it. And sometimes I am a little apprehensive about even trying to teach something to somebody because I'm not sure that I can put it into words. Like I have a PA that I'm trying to teach things to. And sometimes I don't think that I'm conveying it very well because I'm not even really sure how I know how to do certain things because of some of it is not necessarily a truly cookbook recipe kind of step-by-step -step thing, but it's more of a kind of just do it thing. Um, and that's, that's always kind of something we struggle with as teachers. Mm -hmm. What types of patients are you treating, taking care of? And, and what is that? What does your day look like? I see a mix of probably 50% cosmetic and 50% reconstructive. Um, I do a lot of surprisingly, I did not think I was going to be doing a lot of, but I do a lot of breast reconstruction. Um, we have a very busy breast reconstructive program and I'm a uh, director of the breast reconstructive program at our local hospital. Um, we have a very busy breast surgeon that came in a very academic surgeon actually. And, um, and she has attracted a lot of patients and therefore me being sort of the de facto plastic surgeon in the area for doing that stuff, I ended up getting a lot of the patients. Um, so that has been something that I didn't expect to be doing a lot of and ended up doing it. And I, that kind of happens in practice. Um, what what I, are the, the reasons for the breast reconstructions typically? Mo almost always breast cancer. Um, various stages. Oftentimes it might be due to a genetic predisposition that the patient has an extremely high risk of developing breast cancer in the future. Or maybe that the patient has an active diagnosis of breast cancer or a very high um, very late stage precancerous lesions. Um, and so they require a mastectomy and therefore then need me to reconstruct the breast. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that we approach that, okay. but it's a pretty, 
pretty intense process. And oftentimes I'm the person, you know, although the patient is getting chemotherapy and radiation and seeing the breast surgeon who does the mastectomy and everything as the plastic surgeon, we are by, by far the person, um, who the patient sees the most of throughout that process, because we're the ones that they see after surgery. They come back to our office oftentimes, you know, on a almost weekly basis to fill something called a tissue expander that expands the breast uh, skin envelope after uh, radiation and after the mastectomy. Um, so they really get to know us. Um, and that's, it's a really nice, um, aspect of our, of the, uh, what we do. Um, another area that I do a lot of is reconstruction after skin cancer resections with dermatologists. Um, so, and sometimes those can be very large defects that we're reconstructing. Um, I do a fair bit of skin cancer resection myself as well. Sometimes the patients actually come to me from the dermatologist with the, with the cancer itself that's just been biopsied and I have to remove it and then do the reconstruction myself, even melanomas. Um, and then, um, when it comes to the cosmetic side of things we do a fair bit of facial cosmetics like facelifts and rhinoplasties and which are nose jobs um and then um things like uh people who have prominent ears pinning the ears back um also fillers and botox for uh less invasive things for for facial rejuvenation helping people look uh, look and feel younger. And then when it comes to the body, we're doing a lot of liposuction, tummy tucks, abdominoplasties, and also, um, a lot of breast surgery. I do, uh, whether I wanted to get involved in it or not, uh, there are a lot of patients who have had breast augmentation over the years. And I, early on in my practice, started seeing a lot of patients that had had previous augmentations who needed either to have them removed or revised or, upgraded for whatever, you know, term you want to use. And many surgeons don't really like dealing with those patients and they tend to sort of shy away from doing it for one reason or another. And I never, I always felt like it was better to get good at taking care of those patients early on in my career and kind of ended up attracting a lot of them. And so that's probably about 15% of what I do on a daily basis is taking care of complex, um, cosmetic breast patients. And it's a very, it's a fairly challenging field. What is your what is your day-to-day schedule look like in your week? How how often are you in the operating room? How often are you in clinic? I am in the operating room at least two full days a week now, sometimes up to three full days a week. And um probably working about fifty to sixty hours a week and sometimes less, between forty and sixty hours a week. And usually get on my office only days, I get in around nine finish around six, six or seven o'clock. My OR only days, I start around seven, seven thirty, and finish between four and five and try to do my larger, longer cases first thing in the morning. And then the local type cases, mole removals or lesion removals or, le- or skin cancer reconstructions, those kind of things in the afternoons. Um, and then I have a excellent, uh, physician assistant that has been with me for about two years now that does see a lot of my post-operative patients in the office and kind of, we are, we're very much on the same page and that has, I thought she was mostly going to offload a lot of my post-operative care, but now she's actually seeing a lot of pre-operative patients as well. So it's actually increased sort of, I thought it was going to just take some of my afterload away, but she's actually increased the preload too, to use a cardiac <laughs> analogy. Um, and that was, that has sort of backfired a little bit cause that's actually made me busier. Um, cause she's so excellent. And, um, so, and because the demand is so high, I've just gotten so much busier across the board. So we're trying to sort of balance life though. I mean, I feel like I don't want to burn out. I love what I do and I don't want to start despising what I do. So we're trying to titrate it and make it something that is sustainable. So private practice question for you, and one, one that I normally don't ask, but since you mentioned it, running a private practice, what is your goal? Yeah, I mean, you, you could be as busy as possible, it sounds like, but w- what are you aiming for to, to, as a goal for work-life balance, to use a term that I don't think really exists? I would like to have my weekends off. Um, I pretty much cover myself 
24 7 365 except when i'm on vacation like physically away and even then i'm pretty much available for patient issues that only i really can answer um unless my pa is available to answer it um and i'm still available to her if it's something that she feels like is something that needs to get you know run up the chain of command um i like to not I don't do any office hours on the weekend. That's family time. And I try to be home every night to help put the kids to bed and stuff. Other than that, um, really pretty much the week is, uh, just, you know, kind of going all out and working as hard as we can and getting as many patients in and seen carefully as we can. And the weekend is kind of my time as much as it can possibly be. And that's really kind of how I'm trying to do it. And, but the other priority is that I think what has made us successful and made me successful and made us take good care of patients is making sure that we're taking enough time with each patient. And I think one of the reasons I've shied away from being employed or being kind of in a situation like that is I don't want to be in a position where I'm being told how many people I have to see a day or how many RVUs I need to get. We're doing pretty well from a you know, fiscal perspective. I don't want there to be any other metrics that I need to have to use. And other than that, the patients are happy. We're taking good care of them and that my bills are paid. Right. And that might be oversimplified, but I like the fact that that's how I can do it right now. I mean, because I feel like when I talk to other colleagues, that's not how they're living. And and I, and I feel like I'm kind of, sometimes I almost keep that a little bit under my hat because I feel like when I talk about it that way, I get kind of the evil eye. Yeah. Um, but it's the way I, I, I've been able to carve it out that way, and I feel extremely fortunate for it. Good. As a, as a plastic surgeon, when you're seeing patients in the office or now when your PA is seeing a lot of patients, what percentage of those patients actually go on to be seen by you in the operating room? Um, in plastic surgery, we call that a conversion rate if it's with the cosmetic patients. Um, and that's kind of when somebody who's like a consultant comes in and is treating it like a business when you're trying to sell to people. Um, we don't really, we choose to kind of not look at it that way because I feel like that's kind of slimy. Um, but I would say that our, if we're going to use that term conversion rate, I'd say we're probably in the, in the high 80%. Um, people tend to be coming to our office at this point because they're coming to see me, um, and see us, you know, they know what they're, they know what they're looking for. We're not, they're not doctor shopping as much. They're, they've waited a decent amount of time to see us. They've, they're there to see us and they are typically there to have surgery. So it's, it's a pretty high percentage. Um, and nobody goes to the operating room without seeing me in the office first, with the exception of a local anesthesia procedure where they get to meet me that day. I talk to them and they're awake for the procedure. But if somebody's going to get general anesthesia, they may see my PA first on like a, you know, one week just because they can get in sooner to see her and if the patient then may you know get a second appointment with me to have another formal sit down discussion if they're you know going to go forward and then you know we still have a formal consultation it's not not one of those you know they're going to come in you know they see her for breast augmentation consultation and then the next time you know by the time they meet me they have new implants or anything like that that's Mm -hmm. You know, and we don't, I don't do any, um, internet based consultations or anything like that. I'm not that famous. Um, (laughs) I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say that I should say I'm not famous. Um, and I, and I don't know that I ever want to be, you know, that seat of the pants to me that just sort of flies in the face of how I think I want to do things. And, um, in terms of how I want to care about care for patients, it's, um, another thing that we don't do that I think is, and I don't, and I don't there are a lot of surgeons that I respect that, that I, that I still see do this, um, is there are patients that come in, they're insecure about something and we all are, we all have our things. Um, they're coming to see you for one thing. Like maybe they don't like the way their belly looks after multiple pregnancies or something like that. Are there other things that you could operate on? Absolutely. We all have, you know, just cause one thing may bother you doesn't mean there are other things that may be addressable as well it is a strict policy in our office to not mention those other things or to try to market other things. But I have plenty of patients that say that say to me that they've come into, they come into our office and that's very refreshing because they will go into another office. They're coming in for a tummy tuck and the, the, uh, the surgeon there will be like, have you considered getting a neck lift? Have you considered <laughs> getting your, your breasts done? Have you considered this? Have you considered that? Like they walk in to talk about, you know, 
getting fillers in their lips and they walk out with $30,000 worth of quotes and a whole new complex because they didn't realize that all those other things needed to be addressed. And as a plastic surgeon or a cosmetic surgeon, and I'm making air quotes, even though you can't see them, you have a lot of power to make somebody feel better about themselves or feel worse about themselves. And if you're, if you're doing it ethically and conscientiously, I feel like I send a lot of people out of the office saying, you know, you know what, you don't need surgery. Don't, and don't listen to anybody that tells you that you do because that's the right thing to do. I mean, it's at the end of the day, we're still physicians that took an oath to do the right thing for people. And I feel like it is my job to make sure that people, if they're going to have this kind of surgery, it needs to be done safely under the right circumstances. And that's still part of why I'm doing this. It's to do it well and do it safely and do it under the right circumstances for the right patients. Um, and I feel like there are a lot of people out there that what really bothers me about this field is that there are a lot of people out there that are just, you know, maybe they've got alimony or maybe they have a boat to pay for, or maybe they've bit off more than they could chew, or maybe they're just greedy and they're making a lot of decisions for financial reasons that are impacting other people's lives negatively. And they're doing a lot of surgery for that reason. And it really it makes us all look bad kind of collectively. And that's why plastic surgeons and cosmetic surgeons have a bad name sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a private practice plastic surgeon and, and maybe more generally for other private practice plastic surgeons, is it common to, to cover call at hospitals or are you really just responsible for your own patients? I think it's, it's pretty variable. I am in a position where I don't cover much call at the surrounding hospitals. I think in the more metropolitan areas, many hospitals require call as a stipulation of privileges or credentials. I have been able to not necessarily have to do that. And I don't want to talk too much about that because I don't want somebody to listen to this and be like, oh, you don't here? Well, now you do. Yeah. Um, and, and what you mean by that is being allowed to use their operating rooms and stuff like that? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, I, the majority of what I do is actually at an outs, outs at a freestanding ambulatory surgery center, meaning a surgery center that, um, is not attached to or affiliated with a hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, but I still have to do everything. That's like a major operation I do in the hospital. Um, and I probably have a lower threshold for doing certain things in the hospital than some docs do. Some people actually really do push the envelope with that. Um, because it's cheaper to do things in an ambulatory center than it is to do it in a hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't, I, I don't know what percentage of people do things, do take call. Um, I actually anticipated having to take call when I took the position that I, that I took. Um, and then when I got here, I found out that it wasn't necessarily expected. I do do sort of stay on as like a courtesy and if I'm available and they need me for something and I can go in, I will. So it's kind of like one of those I'm always on, but I'm always not on. Um, and it seems to have worked well. And they like the fact that I'm available if I'm available. Um, and, and they take really, if one of my patients needs to get in there in a hurry to be seen, the ER has always been very good to my patients. And, um, and I, you know, I'm available in the middle of the night if they need to call me and curbside me for something. And, and if they need to send a patient to my office later on for suture removal or something like that, we never give them any pushback. So it's, it's still pretty symbiotic. Um, and as you, I'm sure, know, one hand always washes the other in terms of stuff like that. There's never, you know, nothing ever gets better by pushback or anything like that. You mean if you're nice to people, things work out? Seems to work that way. Oh, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, what does, what does the path look like tr postgraduate training wise to be a plastic surgeon? There are two typical approaches, um, and I don't know how much it's changed since I finished, um, but one way is usually either finishing med school and going into either general surgery, neurosurgery, orthopedics, or ear, nose, and throat, and then matching after that into what we call a plastic surgery fellowship. Um, then the other approach is what like a, you mentioned a, a categorical plastic surgery program, meaning that it's a dedicated program for plastic surgery. Actually, urology is the other pathway that they can do it from. I went from the general surgery program at UMass and transitioned into the plastic surgery program. So it was more of the traditional approach. 
but it was kind of a hybrid because I was actually able to transition out after my third year of general surgery. Um, that is the only type of residency that you can do that from. You don't, you do not have to, with the, this gets where it gets confusing with the traditional, um, fellowship pathway. You don't have to finish general surgery. You do have to finish all of the other types of residencies before you go into a plastics fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and what that often ends up happening, it's typically your home program. Cause that's typically where the plastic surgery program would know you. And maybe you did some research with them and stuff. And that's how it worked at UMass for me. I was already at UMass for my general surgery training, did two years in the plastic surgery laboratory there. Um, and worked on various projects with them. So I was a known commodity. And then also you have to pretty much be very, very competitive with the rest of the applying you know, population to even have, still have a chance and then got into the fellowship and then finished up. Um, so it was still a seven year pathway. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was my next. So it's, it's still seven years either way, yes. categorical or gen surge to plastic Categorical. Categorical might be six. Okay. Um, and then some gen surge actually can end up being nine because they'll do oftentimes five years of general surgery, two years of research, two or three years of plastics. And I think all plastics fellowships are now three years mandatory. Um, and then many will actually do a year of hand fellowship in addition um, to because it's so competitive. I think the year that I applied, there were something like only 92 uh, plastic surgery fellowship spots in the country. Um, that doesn't include the categorical spots. That just includes the spots for the um, for the uh, fellowship or sort of the post general surgery um, mm-hmm. positions. Yeah, um, which is when you put it in the perspective of like the baseball or NFL draft. It's that's not that many positions. Yeah. How competitive? Uh, obviously, numbers wise, n- number of spots wise, there's not a lot. But how competitive are each of those spots to get? I. I, I think I don't know the exact numbers, but I think it's among the subspecialties in surgery. I think it is the most competitive. Um, I don't know of any that are more competitive. Um, and I think maybe derm might be the most, the only one that's more competitive in terms of everything else. In terms of the categorical spots now, in out of straight from med school, plastics might be the most competitive now. Um, I, but I don't quote me on that. You may have better data on that than me. Yeah, I, I haven't looked at the plastics data yet, but uh, I will eventually. Um, <laughs> what should a student be doing? Because obviously that's very um, intimidating for a student going through the process to, to mm-hmm. know that plastics has been their dream and now to hear that it's the most competitive. What should a student be doing to be a competitive applicant? You definitely, I would say, set yourself apart by number one, showing early on showing interest in plastics. We definitely in my program looked more closely and how can you not at the students who rotated through the program, the students who spent, did an away rotation with us, who did a sub I with us and spent time with us. And they do ask the fellows and the residents who the good sub interns were that spent time with you, you know, and they, those I mean, I'd be lying, you know, not, since I'm not really officially affiliated with any programs at this point, I can say I'd be lying if you didn't say that those, those sub eyes get inside track to a spot. Um, you, and cause you're, that's a, that, that is a month long interview. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the good, su- the good sub eyes have an inside track. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, and, um, and so I think that makes a huge difference. And we even, you know, there were even some that spent extra time. They, you know, some international students who, you know, had found ways to do even spend time doing research and stuff like that. And so I think that that makes a huge difference. It's, I mean, and I'm not talking any like outside of the match collusion or anything like that. I'm just talking about, you know, you're much more likely to want to match somebody that you know, and you know is good. And so and then people that you also are going to get to see in the operating room and teach things and see that their hands are good and see that they're conscientious and good with patients and also see that they're good with the staff. And you know, you know, as well as I do too, that who the people that are good with the staff, the staff wield a remarkable amount of power. Um, when it comes to, you know, the chairman's secretary is going to have more, probably more say in, in the ultimate decisions 
of who gets into the program than potentially sometimes the junior faculty. Um, you know, because so those are the people to be nice to when you call and when you you know are, are trying to coordinate something with a program because they are definitely have the 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 ear of the program directors and the the higher ups. And I think that you know we we tend to focus a lot on research and volunteer work and international experience and stuff, but all the strong application that's that's like kind of the baseline. You need to be you know good at those other sort of intangibles on top of that. I think. Um, and those are the things that we kind of looked at, you know, the ones that are the students that were absolute rock stars, but then kind of walked past the office staff with their nose in the air, almost got, you know, we called pinged right out of the gate, you know, persona non grata. <laughs> um, and I, because, you know, you just know that you're not going to like working with those people. Yep. Um, and it's, you, you almost think about for, this is a really smart person. How are they, how does this, how's that not on their radar that you need to know that these are the people that can make or break you. Um, and they're also just usually very awesome people that can make your life a lot easier. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's, that's in addition to the, to the baseline things. I mean, international volunteer work is always very helpful. Um, if you have the resources, it, it's um, research in plastic surgery. There's, there's tons of it. I mean, plastics is always at the forefront of tissue engineering type stuff. Um, and uh, there's, there are always labs that are looking for residents and, and uh, med students to do, to do stuff. There's, there's plenty of stuff to do in that field. Um, so much of it is data mining and stuff like that right now, um, which I think is pretty dry. But I think if you can find your way into something that's, that's a little bit more interesting and surgical, where like a lot of what I did was actually in the laboratory doing technical stuff, that was a lot more interesting than me than trying to do like, you know, meta analyses or, you know, trying to look through you know some data database yeah but that dry stuff if nobody else wants to do it it could be your foot in the door that is true that is true yeah you mentioned that that you started off in gen surge as as a residency program was was that a strategic thing for you going gen surge to to plastics or did you rank plastics first and then had some gen surge as backups Nope. I actually, um, did not apply to any plastics programs. I, I really truly thought gen surge would probably be the way that I would go, um, and finish gen surge for five years. And, and then if I still decided I wanted to do plastics, I would continue on with plastics. Um, and then the more time I spent doing gen surge and did plastics rotations as part of my first couple of years of general surgery, the, the more it became obvious to me that plastics was definitely where I wanted to go. And then that was solidified further when I um, spent time in the plastics lab. Obviously, by the time I got there, I, would, I had pretty much made my decision by the time I got finished my second year of residency and went into the laboratory. Okay. You're an MD, having gone to UMass. As uh, a plastic surgeon and being in one of the most competitive surgical fields there is, if not the most competitive, what sort of negative bias is there towards DOs in the field? I think whatever bias there is or was is, is rapidly diminishing. Um, I think that one of the strongest sub eyes that we had in the program who ultimately did not match in our program, but that was much to the chagrin of most of the resident staff was a DO student that we had. Um, and he in and of in and of himself was a major ambassador to for you know that side of things um i don't think it should be any kind of a i hate using the word contraindication because but you know it is medicine we yeah. get stuck with these words um i can't work on a car without using the words proximal and distal um <laughs> but uh i think i think it's diminishing and rightfully so because oftentimes whatever factors may have been led that person to that pathway have nothing to do with the person's academic strengths or anything. So I think it's really should never even be a factor. Um, why do you ask? It's just a, a good question because a lot of DOs think there is this negative bias. And for some fields there still is, uh, I, I like to call it the, uh, the the old crotchety program director uh, problem, <laughs> um, but yeah, I I think I agree with you that that slowly the the negative do bias is going away. I think one of the things that I've experienced 
and seen it, and I also noticed it with foreign medical grads that I've worked with, is usually the ones that I've encountered kind of that have sort of fought their way to where they are, do have, you know, have are put every MD that they encounter to shame mm -hmm. and it just sort of dispel any falsely acquired biases that anybody has because they have to pretty much work twice as hard to prove anything that they, and they, they shouldn't have to, but they do. And that's always been sort of something that I always um, kind of look forward to seeing. So it's, and I think that's, it's unfortunate that they have to do that, but it tends to be the case. Yeah. What, once you are a plastic surgeon, what opportunities are there to further subspecialize? Um, a million. Uh, you can go towards pediatric craniofacial, which is where I was headed. Um, and then I kind of decided to, uh, do the proverbial get a haircut and get a real job. Um, just looking at another year of debt and another year of like relocating, I was thinking about going to either uh, Philadelphia or Children's Hospital of Philadelphia or Toronto. Um, and then I, this opportunity came along and I decided not to, but that was one that was very attractive. Um, you can become a, a more of a, just a general sort of burn specialist uh, kind of in the, more hospital setting. Um, there is microsurgery is another sort of area that is more of a niche that does have fellowships associated with it. And most of these people, the surgeons with the exception of pediatric craniofacial, and if somebody is, becomes affiliated with like a children's hospital, they tend to stay very isolated into pediatric craniofacial but a lot of the other fields, you do that fellowship and it just becomes something that you're more specialized in within, you know, still doing a lot of other plastic stuff. Mm. But they, you're just now have that extra skill set. Like, so you're ever, so most people that do a microsurgery fellowship for a year will start doing what we call free flaps, where you take tissue from one part of the body and bring it to another part of the body and tie it into the blood supply there um, to really just transfer large pieces of tissue. Um, they, they will also still do much of the rest of general plastics in addition to microsurgery. There's also hand surgery as a subspecialty that's, which overlaps a lot with certain orthopedic surgeons. Um, and most hands, most, I know several plastic surgeons that just exclusively ended up doing hand, um, after doing hand fellowships. And I know of some plastic surgeons who did hand fellowships that don't do any hand anymore. You are pretty qualified after most good plastics residencies and fellowships to do a lot of hand surgery. I happen to do none. Um, and I just got away from it after, after I finished, but you can further specialize and do, you know, all the way up to pretty much nearly the shoulder in terms of orthopedic stuff as a plastic surgeon. Mm. Um, we did a lot of wrist fractures and everything in, in fellowship. Um, Trying to think of other things. I'm probably missing something huge just because I don't do it. Um, I think that's that's a good amount of it. So there are a lot of opportunities, basically. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then between, oh, yeah, well, cosmetic. I mean, there yeah. are people that just strictly do cosmetic. Um, and uh, we, call it, we call it aesthetic plastic surgery. Um, and you can definitely do a fellowship in that. Okay. If you were to give a presentation to primary care providers, what would you present on to them to to help them get their patients the best possible outcomes if they were sending patients to you? Hmm. I think a lot of it is general health maintenance stuff, um, particularly before most plastic surgical operations, smoking cessation and all nicotine products is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, more so probably than any other type of surgery um, because we rely so heavily on blood supply and we're often taking blood supply kind of to the brink um, to quote top gun. Um, <laughs> but it really is. That's, that's a major one. Um, other than that, I think we tend to, 
get a lot of, we tend to be treated pretty well by most referring physicians in most specialties. Um, because I kind of feel like we're the rheumatologists of surgery. Like if people don't really know where to send it, they just send it to plastics. Um, it's, and I, and I like that about our field because it keeps it interesting. Um, there are, there are a lot of times that something will land in my office and I'm like, I've never seen this before, but I really don't have anybody else I can send it to. Um, I guess I'll go look it up. And, um, and that's kind of cool. And so it's a lot of interplay back and forth, but I, I don't really know that that's a hard, that's a hard question. I think, um, I would probably approach it another way. I would go into a field room of primary care doctors and say, what do you need me? What, how can I, you know, what, how can I better serve you guys? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. What other specialists do you work the most that are, do you work closest with? Probably most closely with general surgeons, particularly breast specialists, um, and also surgical oncologists, especially when they're doing like big sarcoma resections and things like that. And also um, dermatologists in terms of skin cancer resections and and oftentimes atypical mole removals and things like that. Okay. As a as a plastic surgeon, are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine that you can think of? There is a lot in industry. Um, it is typically more of a collab. I, I don't, I think in most, from my understanding anyway, just in my own personal kind of, you know, snooping around, it seems like most corporate or research opportunities tend to be fairly few and far between. But I think in plastics, there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration and kind of consulting on product development and research and development kind of stuff or that in that end. Um, but not usually, not a lot of, I think, totally immersive, like leaving medicine entirely type things, um, at least that I've seen. Um, and I think that seemed a lot more attractive to me when I was a resident and I was kind of sick of all of it and the grind. Um, but now that I'm kind of happy where I am, it doesn't, I haven't really looked that much into it as much. Um, but I do some, like I work fairly with the products that I really believe in and that I use a lot in my, in my work, I do kind of collaborate with the, on the corporate side of things a little bit. And, um, but only in as much as I kind of believe in what they're doing, I'm not, you know, a corporate, you know, lackey that is, you know, anybody that's willing to give me an honorarium, I'm going <laughs> to tell them what, you know, be their, be their puppet. Yeah. What do you wish you knew going into plastic surgery that you know now? You know, there isn't much. I know we're supposed to be cynical all the time, but I feel like the chips have kind of, and, and I'm not arrogant enough to say that I've made every right decision. I feel like despite my best efforts, the chips have fallen pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I think globally, I sort of wish I had invested better. Um, even though I'm still very young, I feel like from the get-go, I should have started socking more money away. Um, I'm still in a position to do so, but I think that would be the thing that I wish I knew is, you know, start saving even earlier. Yeah. Compound, compound interest. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all can do that. Yes. I think maybe just, you know, here's the thing is, is not being, is, uh, try to not believe all the cynicism, you know, is that, you know, and, and draw your own conclusions is yeah. something that I have always sort of tried to, and I've tried to sort of live that. So it's not something I wish I knew, but it is a piece of advice that I think is, is good to give to students and, and people even thinking about going into medicine. Cause I think as you, as you probably recall, people, people are so quick to tell you, you know, run away, don't go into this, don't go into that. It's a good life. Yep. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And if anybody listens to my, my pre-band years podcast, that's, that's one of the big messages that I uh, give away on that one. What do you like the most about being a plastic surgeon? The opportunity to help people um, in mostly happy stuff. You know, it's not a lot of depressing or 
giving bad news. I, I have the occasional melanoma patient where I'm giving them a bad diagnosis. Um, occasionally some sad stuff. Um, where it's a patient, you know, that has an advanced disease or something like that. But for the most part, even with my cancer patients, it's sort of, I'm helping them kind of with the silver lining side of it as much as I can. Um, and that is really what I like the most is that I get, I'm getting to use a, a, a unique set of skills to help people, to help make people whole again. And, um, and it's extremely rewarding. I feel extremely lucky to get to do what I do. It's, um, really there are, you know, and you, you know, as well as I do there, there's always a handful of patients that really sort of almost, you know, years later, you'll look back on them and they kind of give you a little bit of a lump in your throat when you think about them. But there are, there, are, I, I have more than a handful of those patients that just kind of make it all worthwhile. And it's just, it's, it's actually, I feel extremely fortunate to, to be that, be able to do that. It's, it's not everybody gets to do that. Yeah. That's awesome. What do you like the least? Probably the people that are exploiting patients' insecurities for personal gain um, at no, with really zero concern for their, the patient's well-being. Um, and at this point, there are a lot of quote-unquote cosmetic surgeons that aren't even in the core surgical specialties such, or even, or plastic surgeons that are calling themselves board certified cosmetic surgeons and they're doing these just massive operations in their offices and taking advantage of patients who don't know that there's no such thing really as a board certified cosmetic surgeon, you know, that they, there's, there's no training program for that. It's not recognized by the American board of medical specialties and they're taking advantage of patients and not as it number one, it's giving any physician who does aesthetic operations, a bad name, but number two, it's exploiting people's insecurities and subjecting them to extreme danger. And it's really frustrating. I mean, when you see something in the news about a patient dying on the table, it is almost never a board certified plastic surgeon. In fact, I can't think of a situation, knock on wood, where it was. Um, it's typically somebody who's not qualified, who's doing things by the seat of their pants, who doesn't really know what they're doing, but they're, you know, just trying to make money hand over fists and taking advantage of patients. And it's, it really upsets me that it's going on, on a very deep level. Um, and sometimes I have a very hard time keeping my mouth shut about it when patients come into my office and I know that they've seen somebody that falls into that category. Um, and they're usually very good salesmen. They are not shy about, you know, posting things on Snapchat and YouTube, and they can make a lot of claims that we're not allowed to make as board certified plastic surgeons because our code of ethics prevents us from making certain claims. We're not allowed to auction off or raffle off surgery. We're not allowed to do certain things like that. So we're almost limited in the, our ability to fight back because there's also not that many of us by comparison. And so our, our code of ethics prevents us from doing certain things and it rightfully so, but people with less ethics are actually taking really significant advantage of patients. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of, of plastic surgery, whether it's technology or new procedures or anything like that? We are doing at this point, a lot of, um, using patients own fat to reconstruct their breasts. Um, also to help restore volume in other areas of the body. Um, there is certain things with tissue engineering and, um, and, uh, cellular engineering that kind of ebb and flow. And, but I don't, there hasn't really been because so much of what we do, I think is kind of based on your, your skill set. A lot of the technology tends to kind of be complementary and not major like huge quantum leap kind of things. Um, and, and I, that's, which is what's interesting about plastics is a lot of some, sometimes many of the major surgical advances come from quote unquote developing countries because really, you know, all you really sometimes need is a good microscope and some good hands to do some pretty incredible surgical procedures. Um, and, uh, and maybe loose, uh, institutional ethics, uh, <laughs> rules. Um, but they, you know, so it's 
a lot of it, the field is oftentimes it's it's based on you know the innovation sort of more cognitive innovation than than technical um and that's one of the actually i think kind of one of the cool things about it if you had to do it all over again would you still be a plastic surgeon i i can't see myself doing anything else frankly all right any last words of wisdom for a pre-med or a medical student who may be considering this or is 100% gung-ho on it? What what should uh, they be doing next step-wise to, to stay motivated and, and to get ahead? Um, ask people who seem to like what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing, um, and seek out opportunities whenever you can and do what you can to set yourself apart from your peers. Um, because that's the only way you're going to get ahead. Um, and I don't mean in like cutthroat ways, um, be a good person. (laughs) Um, and another great piece of advice that I received from, uh, 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 excellent mentor was go where you're needed. Um, you don't have to necessarily work in a Mecca, or, you know, major metropolitan area. Um, I think one of the reasons I've been so successful is because I kind of went to an area actually happens to be the city where my wife grew up. Um, and then the patients have kind of found me in spite of that. Um, I'm also not totally out of the, off the beaten path, but it's, I'm not competing with, you know, 75 other plastic surgeons for a very small patient pool. Um, and then you get experience, you get good, and then word spreads and that's how you get busy. Um, and that was told to me by a person who is pretty much one of the most prominent uh, rhinoplasty surgeons in the world right now. Um, and he operates out of Nashua, New Hampshire, um, Dr. Mark Constantin. Um, and it's pretty interesting because, you know, you'd think that he would need to be kind of in L.A. or, you know, something like that. And he's not. He kind of went where there was a need and got very busy doing that. I think that's for, that's more of a further down the line kind of advice. But still very important. Um, and I think, but I think sort of early on, it's important to really just not give up and not listen to the discouragement because a lot of times people that are being discouraging are people that have sort of met roadblocks that maybe you're not going to be subject to, um, for whatever reason. Um, and so you don't, the things that kind of stopped them are not necessarily the things that are going to stop you. Um, and I think probably from my first conversation with a pre-med advisor, when I was a freshman in college was incredibly discouraging and they probably didn't get better for the first, you know, until I, my grades got really, really good, you know, a year later. Um, but I mean, it's almost like they just try to beat you down repeatedly and you just have to sort of ignore it and trust in yourself. All right. There you have it again. That was Dr. Russell Babbitt, a private practice plastic surgeon talking all about plastics If you're interested in plastics, go back, listen again, take some notes, and go out and start making things happen. Hope this was helpful for you. If it was, I'd love for you to share it with your classmates, your advisors, whoever, your mom, your dad, anybody, anybody that listens is a win in my book. I appreciate you taking the time to listen, and I hope you will be here next week here at the Specialty Stories Podcast.